Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Nothing in the forecasts, whether the Reserve Bank forecasts or the Treasury forecast, is preordained. And I think it is true that the coming 12 months or so will be bumpy in the economy. And we know that the most important consequence of that is that people are feeling the squeeze. Hello, lovely potters. Welcome to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy. I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. With me this week is the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. It's been a very busy week for economic news. If you've been reading, you'll know that new national accounts data shows that Australia is now in a per capita recession. That means that growth per person has gone backwards over the past financial year. So there's lots to discuss, and it's best we crack on. Treasurer, welcome to the show. Thanks, Catherine, for having me back. Uh, Well, first of all, I should... I think, say happy anniversary, (laughs) I think. Is it 10 years in the parliament? 10 years in the parliament, yeah. So uh, this Thursday, Thursday of this week, uh, 10 years since the 2013 election. Yeah, I thought it was close. But of course, that's your front-facing bit of the parliament. It doesn't take into account the thousands of years you were stranded. (laughs) (laughs) I have been knocking around here for a while. Well, Um, just, yes, it's sort of. Anyway, I just wanted to mark the milestone because, you know, 10 years in the parliament, that's a good milestone. Unfortunately, almost 90% of that in opposition, but we're working on fixing up that imbalance. Oh, well, see, there you go. (laughs) Anyway, uh, we've got to start with Qantas because it's been a huge issue this week and legitimately so. So there's been controversy around Catherine King, the Transport Minister's decision to knock back more flights from Qatar at a time where Qantas has made a big fat profit and where most of the country thinks Qantas's service delivery feels optional to them. Mm. So obviously you are not the Transport Minister. I'm not asking you why you made a decision you didn't make, but you are the Treasurer. You're responsible for uh, productivity in the economy, competition Mm -hmm. in the economy, all of that piece, right? So what is the case for protecting Qantas from competition? From a, from a Treasury perspective, what is the case? Well, I think it's possible to have a more competitive uh, and a stronger aviation sector at the same time as we allow for uh, decisions that are taken from time to time by transport ministers of both political persuasions, frankly, uh, about these country-to-country arrangements. And the aviation sector is actually expanding. The international capacity is growing rather than shrinking. That's a good thing. Um, and my job, as you rightly identify, is to get the kind of broader competitive settings right, try and get a more competitive, dynamic, more productive economy. 
And in that light, I think it's really important that people focus on the aviation green paper that Catherine King has just released. Uh, and that is about the future of the aviation sector, a very important part of our economy and a big focus for us. It's sort of a, you know, what well, we're alluding to it in my question and your response to it. It's sort of like, it's such a case study, Qantas, and what's happened over the last little bit about a problem that you're dealing with in the Australian economy, which is companies are large. Uh, there's not enough competition in a number of key sectors, gives producers a lot of power, consumers very limited power. Again, from a policy point of view, Andrew Lee, one of your offsiders in the portfolio, is having a look at this closely. But it's a tough nut to crack, though, isn't it? It's sort of small economy syndrome, mm. right? So what can people expect on competition reform realistically? Yeah, our economy is not competitive enough. That means it's not dynamic or productive enough. And that's our starting point. Uh, and we have unleashed uh, Andrew Lee, yes. the really quite extraordinary expertise and enthusiasm that he has for competition policy. And that's because we need to try and turn this ship around. Uh, it has implications for cost of living. It has implications for living standards more broadly, uh, productivity in the economy, as we've said. And so we have kicked off uh, a process of revisiting a lot of the competition settings in our economy, uh, whether it is things like um, you know, no compete clauses when people leave jobs, where it's things like mergers and acquisitions, which the ACCC has been on about for a while. We do think there's an opportunity to chip away at this competition challenge in our economy, and that's what the work that Andrew and I will do. Okay. Another thing I want to touch down on quickly, just before we move into a discussion I know we both want to have about the economy. Below the radar, uh, sorry, too many aviation <laughs> metaphors here, I think. Anyway, because Qantas was such a big issue this week, it sort of, it didn't go unreported, but it went largely unremarked. Uh, the government released a new strategy for trade diversification in the ASEAN region. Uh, the context for this, guys, if you think, well, why on earth would we do this, is China basically has locked out Australian exports over a number of years. So there is an imperative to look for other markets in the region. And also just part of the economic growth story, it's not just a hedge against China. There, there are reasons to do this positively as well as negatively. But the thing I was interested in that, that is in your Ballywick, there's a signpost in the report that says we might sort of come up with a more favourable foreign investment regime for ASEAN countries. Mm. What? <laughs> <laughs> what? What well, is this? Well, what there's a this? heap in that. Let, let me try and unpack it as quickly as I can, as briefly as I can. Uh, incredible work by Nicholas Moore, working closely with Penny Wong and the Prime Minister and with our support. Um, businesses, investors, governments, including definitely our government, are trying to work out how do we de-risk our supply chains and our trading relationships without decoupling. Oh, God, and friend-shoring has become a thing. It's become oh a big God, thing. Oh, my God, I've been away six months and friend-shoring is... <laughs> oh, oh, anyway, sorry. Yeah, the sorry. Americans talk about that a lot. My, my friend and counterpart, Janet Yellen, talks about that a lot. That's really about de-risking our relationships without decoupling. And what this uh, new strategy that the Prime Minister released is all about is about recognising that as the world is fragmenting and as we've learned a lot from COVID about our supply chains and our trading relationships, those things need to be as reliable and as resilient and as robust as possible. And so the wonderful work that Nicholas Moore has done, and I thank him for it, and I engage with him relatively regularly on it, is about how do we chip away at that in our region. It's the opportunity of a century, the growth in Asia, uh, and we've got so many advantages that we bring to the table. And one of the things that I would like to try and do, and it's in Nick's report, 
for good reason, mm-hmm. uh, is we want to make sure that the Foreign Investment Review Board process continues to weigh up our national interest. Every country's got a right to weigh up uh, investment in the context of its national interest. But are there ways that we can make it more investor-friendly? And we have been doing a bunch of work on that already. But Nick's work and Nick's recommendation in the strategy, uh, I think, is a really important signpost uh, for the progress that we hope to make here. Mm, And sort of countries, well, I'm just thinking China, there might be some pushback if there's a more favourable set of conditions for one set of economic partners as opposed to others. I mean, I I realise there are different Yeah, but it's, I mean, the most important thing there is that our FERB arrangements are non-discriminatory. They're not about country versus country. They're about types of investments. Uh, They're about uh, amounts of investment. uh, And that will continue to be the case. Uh, It's a non-discriminatory policy. But for example, one of the things that we've been grappling with is where there are repeat investors, uh, whether or not, and Nick puts it um, uh, well when you talk to him about it as well, whether or not people have to go back to the very beginning if they are a long-standing trusted investor, mm. whether they have to kind of run the gauntlet from beginning okay. to end each time, yep. we'll have a look at that and see if we can do better. Okay, interesting. Uh, now, let's get to the economy because obviously we had new economic data from the ABS this week, which basically indicates that population is sort of factor keeping the economy afloat. At this point, there's been a lot of commentary around over the last couple of days about Australia being in a per capita recession. Um, One more foregrounding thing before we get to the question. In our Guardian Essential poll this fortnight, the biggest negative movement in the poll was people's perceptions about their financial circumstances Mm -hmm. at this point. In time, it was a six-point negative movement in only a month. So people are obviously feeling very vulnerable. Now, you know, economists talk about hard landings and soft landings. Are we heading for a soft landing? Well, that's certainly the expectation of the Treasury in their forecasts, um, but it's not assured, is the truth of it. Um, and nothing in the forecasts, whether the Reserve Bank forecasts or the Treasury forecasts, is preordained. And I think it is true that the coming 12 months or so will be bumpy in the economy. And we know uh, that the most important consequence of that is that people are feeling the squeeze. Uh, People are under, in some cases, intense and immense pressure in their household finances. And that's what you're referring to. And we understand that. And that's why amidst all of the government's priorities, the number one priority is to roll out these billions of dollars in cost of living help in a way that takes some of the edge off this inflationary pressure rather than adding to it. And it's carefully calibrated to do that. There is a lot of support rolling out, but whether it's in energy or whether it's in out-of-pocket health costs uh, or rent assistance or social security, it's about trying to take the edge off these inflationary pressures rather than adding to it. Now, I understand that in this climate where people are under pressure, and we acknowledge that, we have to demonstrate, it's on us to demonstrate, that a good government can do more than one thing at once. We can maintain a focus, a primary focus on the here and now, the pressures that people are under, at the same time as we lay the foundations for the future and some of the issues in the intergenerational report, at Mm. the same time as we recognise First Nations people in the constitution. You know, bad governments can't do multiple things at once. Good governments can. uh, And this is a good government capable of doing more than one thing at once. And it does make it 
when people are under pressure, it does make it harder to focus the nation on the longer term as well. And our opponents will always play politics with that. It's sort of a a humiliating confession of sorts when the, our opponents say that they can only think about one thing at once and the here and now and can't think about the future. That should be disqualifying. Uh, we are capable of doing more than one thing at once, but we recognise that when people are under pressure, it's a bit harder uh, to do some of the longer term things that we all need to do as a country. And if you look at that intergenerational report and you think about the shift from hydrocarbons to renewables, from IT to AI, uh, you think about the fragmentation of the world that we were talking about, the ageing of the population, the pressure on the budget, uh, we need to serve our immediate priorities and our generational responsibilities at the same time. And that's what we're doing. I want to drill down. There's uh, there's a couple of really interesting things in the intergenerational report which you released in the time I was away. So there's a couple of things I want to pick up about the intergenerational report and put to you. Um, but let's just go back to the soft landing for a minute. You say it's not assured. Now, obviously, treasurers choose their language very carefully. You're leaving open the prospect that we could see a recession, not a per capita recession, a recession, recession. Well, that's not my expectation. It's not the, the expectation of the Treasury or the Reserve Bank in their forecast. So I guess the point that I'm making uh, is that Australia's economy has performed in a really steady and sturdy way. We saw that in this week's national accounts. We've got a lot going for us. You know, Our labour market's been incredibly strong. We've got the budget in better, Nick, the first surplus in 15 years. Our international education and tourism sectors are performing remarkably well, and that's one of the big standout uh, pieces from the national accounts as well. So we've got a lot going for us. Uh, we expect the Australian economy to continue to grow, uh, but the next 12 months, there will be a lot of uncertainty. And, and I don't want to say that we're hostage to developments in China or you know, the impact of these rate rises, with interest rate rises, which are already in the system. Mm. Um, but those two things will be the biggest determinants well, uh, of whether or not we uh, meet the forecasts from the Treasury or underperform or overperform yeah, against them. I'm glad you flagged China because obviously there's been a lot of commentary around about the Chinese economy and that's part of the story about the recent depreciation in the Australian dollar or yep. it's, yep. you know, the analysis around the markets. The listeners will know I'm in a bit of a time warp because I've been away for a while. So coming back in, it's sort of funny. When I went away, you were very concerned about the US. When I come back, obviously, China is front of mind. Mm. And so things look pretty bad, not to put too fine a point on it. Well, in the world, I think of it as this kind of tug of war between risk and resilience. Um, and at the start of the year, uh, in the risk column, we were worried about the financial system, Silicon Valley Bank, Credit Suisse. Uh, we were worried about a hard landing in the US. And again, a soft landing is not assured in the US. Mm. But uh, the balance of risks has shifted in mm. the global economy. There's still an immense amount of global economic uncertainty, Russia, Ukraine, uh, a lot of uh, countries have gone backwards uh, in the course of the last recent half a year or so. So there's still a lot of risk in the global economy, but the risk, the sharpest point of the risk right now, I think, is the slowdown in China. I think everybody is watching very closely developments, particularly in their property sector, but also their retail sector. Their exports have been a bit weaker. Their economy is slowing. They've got deflation, mm. if you can believe it. Mm. It's um, hard to believe, but yeah. Yeah, and mm. so and so China really is in the international in the in the uh, on on the international horizon. 
the the part of it which is most concerning to us, which we monitor most closely, is China. And in the domestic scene, obviously, we're seeing these interest rate rises, which began before the election and continued after. We are seeing them biting quite substantially in the household consumption data, including in the national accounts. Mm. And so those two things uh, will be the main determinants, the impact of rates, the impact of a slowing China. Those are the two things that I think will be the biggest determinants of whether we do as we're expected, mm. which is to continue to grow, but quite slowly, mm. or whether we under or overperform against those forecasts. Mm. Okay. Um, now, let's go to the intergenerational report because we'll get back into this subject of reform and whether reform is possible in an environment like this. Mm. There are a couple of points, well, many points of interest in the intergenerational report when I read it a few days ago, but a couple of specifics I want to put to you now. One thing it pointed to on the revenue side in the coming decades is obvious if you think about it for more than two seconds. The electrification of the transport fleet Mm. will basically erode, well, eventually eliminate uh, fuel tax revenue. So that punches a big, big hole in the budget. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing of interest, uh, because you and I talk about tax a bit and uh, my favourite bugbearer of the Stage 3 tax cuts. But anyway, let's just... That's for those of you playing Catherine Murphy bingo. <laughs> with, uh... Stage 3. Yeah, well, I think I think we got like 16 <laughs> minutes in before I mentioned it. It's kind of amazing, really. No, but it's kind of like the, the IGR reframes that whole concept a bit. And so I want to bring us up to date in how I'm going to continue to plague you about mm-hmm. this issue, right? Mm-hmm. So... The IGR basically says uh, that a personal income tax will grow from 50% of receipts now to 58% in a few decades. So that brings us to a bracket creep issue. You know, as you as you earn more, you pay more tax. There's obviously a policy thing now which is legitimate and pressing. Um, so I've got two questions. Uh, actually, let's do the personal income tax first because mm-hmm. then we can just work out where we reset on It's stage. your show, Catherine. We well, do it in whatever order you well, like. Well, no, no. We just, we, let's reset conceptually on stage three. I'm doing this largely for my benefit, but Jim actually makes the decision, so it's quite useful <laughs> to have this conversation with the decision maker. Um, so, look, the stage three tax cut package, advocates of it say, look, does marvellous things for bracket creep. Yeah. Everything's fine. It's great. Well, sure, but... The way that it deals with bracket creep confers a benefit on people who earn the most. And I mean, look, there's an argument for that at a conceptual level, but, you know, Labor governments are generally interested in progressivity in the tax system and equity and making sure that people who don't earn very much, you know, get along okay. So are we likely to see you reconfigure that package with bracket creep in mind so that, you know, what it what it tries to do in a policy sense, actually benefits the people who need it most. Yeah. Well, a couple of things about that. And partly this, the secret's in the name. You know, stage three, the first two stages, uh, the ones that we were most enthusiastic about at the time when they were going through both houses of the parliament, um, they had a different distribution to stage three. Um, and so I think one thing to encourage people to do is to see it in its entirety. Mm. Obviously, stage three is the one that's not legislated to come in until the middle of next year. Well, yeah. Yeah. And uh, you've heard me say before that we ha- we haven't changed our position on it. Uh, on the broader question of bracket creep, 
We have never contested uh, this idea that governments of both political persuasions from time to time try to return some of the bracket creep as people you know, edge up the, yeah, the, tax, uh, the scale. tax scales. Yeah. Um, that, to me, is a very, very worthy aspiration because absent that, you know, people just find themselves higher and higher in the scales, uh, which is, you know, good for the budget, but, you know, not, not especially good for the worker. Um, and so returning bracket creep over the next course of the next 40 years of the IGR period, mm. Mm. governments, hopefully there are, gov- you know, there will be governments of both political persuasions, uh, hopefully dominated by Labor governments, but both political persuasions will give back bracket creep in one way or another. Sure. And the next opportunity to do that is the middle of next year. I understand, we've talked about it many times, about how contested the distribution of stage three is. Yeah. I understand that. You know that I welcome people having uh, a range of views about stage three, but I think that there is a remarkable degree of uh, common ground when it comes to the overall aspiration, which is you give bracket creep back when you can afford to do that. Mm. So that sounds like maybe is the answer to well, the no, question. Well, no, I mean, I, well, I, I say the same thing to you each time, which yeah, is that we haven't, you know, we haven't, no, we haven't I know. changed our There's view no about change. Them. Yes, um, yes, but but I think the things I'm trying to leave with you is that there have been three stages. Yeah. The distribution of the three stages have all been different. Yeah. And your question is about the IGR, the fact that the tax base changes over the time. Yeah. Um, EVs will make a huge difference yeah. to excise. We'll come back there. Yeah. I, I hope that we're not taxing tobacco at the end of the IGR yeah, period. I hope, be good. I hope we are raising precisely zero dollars mm. um, from tobacco excise. Mm. Um, and so the tax base will change. And the IGR does point out that uh, we lean uh, heavily on personal income taxes, and that's why governments of both persuasions will give back bracket creep when they can afford to do that. And they'll weigh it up against all their other priorities as well. Mm-hmm. This does sound like maybe. Um, anyway, fuel tax, it's a specific problem, obviously, like yeah. how what you replace mm-hmm. uh, fuel tax with, but I want to pull us out a little bit. Uh, and it's sort of, well, it relates to the bracket creep piece as well, really. And it comes back to this idea that we want to talk about, which is how do you pursue reform in difficult environments? Let's let's just start with first principles. Obviously, fuel tax falling out of the government is something that's going to, oh, sorry, out of the budget, what did I say? Fuel tax, like that revenue hole, that's going to take probably a couple of decades, really, to sort of scale up to the full bad version of it, although maybe electrification happens quicker. I don't know. But anyway, long preamble. What I'm trying to ask you, Jim, is you're the current holder of the Treasury portfolio. Mm-hmm. Do you feel responsible for the retooling of the tax system that is going to have to occur, right? Or do you think, oh, well, the next bozo can deal with that because I've got enough to deal with in terms of my intraday staff. Um, we don't actually have to think about this probably for another five years. That can be whomever my successors, you know, that can be their problem. Yeah, I, I'm not a, I'm not an enthusiastic intergenerational buck passer. It's uh, <laughs> a much and, clearer way of saying yeah, it than I, the way I framed it, so I, thank you. I feel that way about the voice, frankly, yeah. that we shouldn't leave it to our kids. I feel that way about the economy um, and... You know, the point I've made about tax is we've got a full book of tax. Like we're, we're, we still haven't legislated the super changes. Yeah. We haven't legislated the PRRT. There's yeah. more work to do on multinationals. And so to, to be frank with you, I get a little frustrated. People think, well, when is there going to be? Well, we've got three big pieces uh, that we're working on right now, which are contentious and contested. Yeah. 
Um, oh, I didn't suggest you were yeah, sitting on your backside. Yeah. I'm, so it's a, it's a bigger question. It's yeah, I sort understand. of you know. I to- understand. <laughs> uh, so that's our priority. Um, but I, I, you know, whether it's the wellbeing framework, the intergenerational report, the employment white paper, I try and take a longer view as treasurer. One of my frustrations with uh, my three immediate predecessors where I think that they were trying to win the six o'clock news every day and that the long term largely got ignored. I know you don't want a big partisan rant, but that's how I feel about it. That's how I'm trying to be different to my predecessors. Um, the, the thing that gets most commonly raised with me about the chats that you and I have from time to time is when the time that we were talking about Australians will cop big things done slowly, mm. not big things done quickly, yep. not little things done slowly. People, people who listen to you each week will occasionally raise that with me. And that's how I feel about things like tax. Mm. And so I think the most important way to build consensus and to find common ground about reform uh, is to till the soil. Mm. Uh, The intergenerational report is a perfect way to focus the nation's mind on some of these longer-term issues. But so will the employment white paper and the wellbeing framework and some of the other things I've tried to do differently. Because I believe if you want to ask the Australian people to come on a reform journey with you, you've got to give them a sense of why first. Um, And that's why I don't really mind when you put out the intergenerational report and people will kind of pull it apart and they'll, you know, there'll be all kinds of of views and you don't have to agree with all of them. That's what I want. I want to stir that up a little bit. I want to to, um, explain to people the sorts of things that we are grappling with. Because if you want to get some of these longer term issues right, you first got to build the case for why. Look, I know you and I have known each other for a very long time. You are sort of by temperament and uh, style a storyteller. So I understand that. I understand why you value that and you think that's important. And look, I agree. But we've watched at the moment the sort of conditions that we're looking at is the voice campaign is in trouble. That's, that's what all the polling tells us and that's what gut feeling tells us as well. Um, I can feel the sort of the general kind of noise ramping up around uh, the energy transition again. Mm. There's various sort of shifting pieces in that. <laughs> I'm seeing adversity. Now, the, the whole dialogue, as long as I've been in Canberra as a political reporter between treasurers and prime ministers is reform versus, you know, how do we win the next election? And how do we win the next election sometimes involves not disturbing interests in society and economy who don't want to be disturbed. Mm-hmm. You know, do you think the Prime Minister maintains the appetite to keep moving forward? I, I do. Um, uh, and, and yourself. I shouldn't actually just personalise it to the Prime Minister. Do no, you Do you and he yeah. maintain the appetite to keep moving forward? Oh, of course we do. Um, you know, you were, you were kind enough to mention at the start the fact that I've been knocking around here as a member of parliament for a decade today and uh, the Prime Minister's been around here for, for longer than that. And I think the, the overwhelming sense you get at this place is when the opportunity presents itself, you've got to make the most of it. You can't waste a day. Uh, that's the Prime Minister's approach and it permeates right down through the cabinet, so the approach that I share. Um, but when you are trying to do things and you're trying to change things, then you invite some uh, turbulence. I mean, that's just how it is. The alternative to that is to do absolutely nothing and mm. to waste another decade. And that would be a tragedy for Australia. 
And so we understand uh, whether it's the energy transformation, whether it's the voice, uh, whether it's uh, tax reform, uh, we understand that when you try and change something, that can stir up people who would rather things stay exactly the same. But we can't afford to waste another decade as a country. You know, there is so much about this country which is terrific, uh, but there is so much that could have been better if we didn't have this wasted decade where we missed all these opportunities and all of these messed up priorities, and we want to change that. Otherwise, it's no point being here. Mm-hmm. And I, the thing that I really love when the Prime Minister says it is when he says we're not just here to warm the seat. Um, you know, that is the neatest encapsulation of how I come at it um, and how he comes at it. And and that's really, um, you know, it would be an easier life to do nothing. True. Mm. Yes. That's not contested, mm. uh, but it would be a waste of our time and a waste of the nation's time and we can't afford that. Well, and we've got two minutes left, I think, just one more on the spirit of reform and just looking forward into your immediate future. I think we've got an employment white paper coming. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, so this will bring together so much of the government's work. So many ministers have been working really around the clock uh, on this employment white paper that I'll put out before the voice referendum, hopefully the end of September. Oh, okay. end of September. Uh, right. Hopefully the end of September, but it might be the first week of October or something like that. And really what the employment white paper is all about is how do we understand the shifts in the labour market uh, into the future and how do we position our people to be the major beneficiaries of that? That's really my kind of, if there's one thing that I think about as Treasurer, it's how do we understand what's changing in our economy and in our society and how do we make sure that our people are beneficiaries and not victims of that? That's the main thing. That's the whole frame for how I think about all of these policy challenges, including in the labour market. Um, And so what this employment white paper will be all about is about how do we understand full employment? How do we get secure jobs and better pay? How do we deal with skill shortages now, but understand how the labour market's changing so we get the workers we need in the future? How do we make our economy more productive? And how do we deal with these barriers to opportunity, including in communities like the one that Mm. I represent? You know, when we've got national unemployment at 3.7%, but we've got pockets of intergenerational disadvantage and long-term unemployment, how do we try and Uh, bust that up and break that up as well in in an intergenerational sense. And so we will be releasing that before long. Yeah, it is, um, if you want to look at the history of it, you know, you had Chifley after the war, you had Keating in the early 1990s. Now we've got this employment white paper. So the first time in really kind of 30 years plus that we've had this look at the labour market the way that we are. Uh, I'm really proud of how it's evolving. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm proud of the work that other ministers have been doing and contributing to it. We've had a heap of input. It really had its genesis in the Jobs and Skills Summit. We talked about it before then, but the Jobs and Skills Summit really crystallised a lot of the directions that we'll be taking in the uh, in the white paper when I release it. I, I, I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be a really good piece of work. Okay. Well, that's a, a significant watch this space for the listeners. Of course, Jim is well, I think you're probably the chief friend of the pod, really. You... <laughs> Am I number one on I think, the I think regularity? Be, I think you might be number one. <laughs> anyway, well, we'll, we will have another conversation, obviously, about this once it's in the public domain and you know, all the other issues that we canvassed in this conversation too. So um, thank you very much for coming in. Can I just say briefly, Catherine, as a friend of the pod and as a listener of the pod, how wonderful it is to have you back. And I'm sure I'm speaking for your legions of listeners uh, when I say that it's uh, it's wonderful to have you back on the mic. I find praise confusing, but but thank you, Jim. That's that's more than kind. Thank you. This episode was produced by Mel Chun. The executive producer is Molly Glassy. 
Thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. Uh, It's lovely to be back with you. We'll be back next week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.